one of the most popular New Year's resolutions is to get in shape physically. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many times you've made that resolution. But let's just say, uh, for sake of argument, that perhaps you've noticed a few extra aches and pains. Uh, or maybe a few extra pounds. Or maybe you looked in the mirror and you've noticed a few more wrinkles. And you said, you know what? 2012 is going to be the year I get in shape. Because you know that when you're in shape physically, really, you, you think clear. When, when you're in shape physically, your, your disposition and outlook is more positive. When you're in shape physically, you're just more fun to be around. When you're in shape physically, life is more enjoyable. And so you go to your family and you say, family, 2012 is the year I'm getting in shape. And your family might say, well, bravo. Tell us, what is your plan for getting in shape? And you would say, uh, you know, I, I'm going to go to the gym. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the gym. And they say, well, wonderful. That's wonderful. Listen, hey, when are you going to go? And what gym are you going to go to? And if you have a membership yet, and, and do you have a workout buddy? And do you need special equipment or special clothes? Tell us. You know, let us know. And you say, well, I'm still working out the details. But you know what? This year, 2012 is going to be the year I get in shape. Now, you and I, if we heard that kind of thing, we would say, uh, with a bit of skepticism, uh, well, we'll see. Because we know that unless you have a plan, and unless you're committed to that plan, it's just going to be a dream. It's never going to come into reality. Uh, as physically, so spiritually. We see, uh, Paul lets us know. First Timothy seven says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, which basically means don't waste your time. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. God says, don't wait for me to zap you with godliness. You want to be godly? Train yourself. And you might say, 2012 is going to be the year I get in shape spiritually. And we might say, bravo, but what's your plan? Because we know that when we're in shape spiritually, or the better shape we're in spiritually, the more we reflect Jesus. The more attractive our message is. That means the more influence we have in this world. The more uh, uh, his purpose for our life comes into view. The, the more shape we're in, the better shape we're in spiritually, our, our discernment rises. The, our wisdom rises. The more shape we're in, better shape we're in spiritually. You know what? We can dream God's dreams after his heart. We, we can see his hand in our world. We can hear his voice in our ear when we're in shape spiritually. And so you'd say, every believer should make 2012 the year they get in shape. But what's your plan? That's why we're doing this series, Way to Grow. Because when we get to the end of this year, we don't want this year as we look back to be a spiritual wasteland. We want to train ourselves to be godly. And so we, we mentioned a couple of things. We mentioned that it should be, a couple of weeks ago, a commitment to the Word of God, where we don't just know it, but we, we live it, we speak it, it's who we are. And so the application is to be going through the New Year's Challenge. I hope you're doing that. Reading through Psalms and Proverbs, there's some still at the uh, reading guide, still at the information booth if you're interested. A second thing we said is a commitment to uh, living in the conscious presence of Him, conscious of who He is. And we said we're going to let communion once a month when we, when we get together be like a, a his consciousness booster shot to remind us again of his presence. And the third thing we're going to look at this, this morning is a commitment to prayer. 
Uh, now, any, any, and let me back up for just a second and say this. We're not saying this is the only plan. This is the best plan. If you've got a, your own plan and you're working it, keep going. But in case you're looking for a plan, basically any plan that would incorporate spiritual growth, growth should incorporate a commitment to prayer. Now, prayer is a wild subject. I'm telling you, when I was uh, five years old, my, my dad, I remember he pulled me up and he was on the couch. He pulled me up on the couch with him and he said, son, you want your daddy to go away? And that's a stupid question, right? I said, well, uh, no. I said, well, your mama thinks it's best that I go away, so I might be, be going away. Well, every, I knew my dad came home like clockwork between 5 and 5.30 every night. And so I would, from that point on, I'd sneak into the bathroom a little bit before 5, put the lid down, get down by my ceramic altar, and pray vehemently, God, please let my daddy come home. You can imagine about 20 after 5, if my dad wasn't home yet. Oh, man, I'm getting animated. Uh, I'm having a Pentecostal prayer meeting in the, in the bathroom. Well, my dad and my mom got things all squared up between them, but they never told me about it. So every night, I'm walking in the bathroom. I'm having my toilet bowl prayer meeting, man. I'm closing the door, and I'm praying up a storm, a little 5-year-old kid. Well, I start thinking, my dad's coming home. Prayer, maybe it works. This was, oh, wow, I, I can't believe I missed this my whole life. I'm only 5, right? So I, I get my, underneath my brother's crib. My, 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 uh, Matt's, Matt's crib. It's the only place I could find solitude in our household. So I'm there and I'm praying every night before I go to bed, bed for everything because it works, right? Well, then Matt grows up. He gets out of the crib. He and I have to share a room. And so, uh, Matt, brother, my brother Matt did something, uh, secret. It's actually a family secret. He did something growing up, uh, that I'm going to tell you all about because my family's not here and, you know, they never listen to my sermons anyway, so it won't matter. But, Matt would, would lay on his back on, on his bed, and he would do, do this every night. I don't know why, but he would do this. And he'd do this until he fell asleep. Well, I'm, I'm you know, just a few feet away. I'm going, what is this nonsense noise? How do I fix this? And I, I begged and pleaded and threatened, and nothing worked. So I said, I got a plan. Matt, I dropped to my knees. I got to pray. And you can't be saying, ah, oh, while I pray. Matt would say, well, okay, I guess I won't say, uh, while you pray. So I would pray and pray. I figure I'm down there, so I might as well pray. So I'm praying and praying. And then when I think he's probably asleep, I get into my bed ever so quietly. And on occasion, you would hear, I'd get in bed, get all settled down, and all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> oh, I forgot something. i got to pray some more, Matt. And so I'd get on my knees again, and I'm praying. Several times, I fell asleep, and he's, I, I, he's tapping me on my shoulder, waking me up. Can I say, uh, now, Mark? Man, my dysfunctional family taught me to pray. <laughs> it was a, a wild deal. Um, I have been uh, intrigued by, by prayer si- since then. I believe that there's probably no doctrine in Scripture other than maybe the doctrine of God that is not uh, as uh, implicit, explicit in, on the pages of Scripture as the doctrine of prayer. Um, you need to know, as I come this morning, I'm not coming as a uh, 12th degree black belt in prayer. I'm just going to show you all how you do it in these massive uh, uh, prayer demonstrations. I know that there's some of you all who could teach me some things. Um, I've been intrigued, though. And we're, we're going to, to study it this morning. You need to know that this can be a 12-week series. And we're even then only going to touch the surface at that point. So... We're going to look at just two facets of, of prayer this morning. You need to know on the front end, too, that this is going to be a uh, 
different type of message. It's going to be very theological. It's going to be controversial. I, I only ask that you listen it all, all the way out and think it through before you start throwing anything. Um, let me give you a, a caution as well as we think about prayer. Bible study and prayer are never to be separated. They are never to be separated. They are for each other. But in the church, often, we have pol- this thing has become a, a pol- polarity issue, hasn't it? We, we're polarized, polarized by this. You've got your Bible study people over here, and they've got the nuances down and the study down, and they understand, and they're searching, and they're seeking, and their most valuable possessions are their books. Uh, don't have a lot of time to pray, though. And maybe they're studying, maybe they know it like somebody might know Civil War history. Or uh, the Hollywood gossip. They are, just, they are just their thing. And then you've got folk who are the prayer people. And these folk don't have a whole lot of use for the other people because that's all superficial. The real issue is prayer. And so they are just, it's almost like a one-way conversation, though. They're just going to talk and talk and talk and talk to God and on and on and on and on and then get up and leave. And so the two don't always smash. And so we need to know that, that the more fully you understand the Word of God, the more full will be your prayer life. The two are never to be separated. The most precious prayers you will make are before an open Bible. The, most, uh, the best Bible study you will have will be on your, on your knees. Uh, if we could look at the prayers of Moses and of Daniel and of Jeremiah and of Mary and of Jesus and of Paul, you would find prayers that are very, very theologically sound. I mean, these things are, are dripping with Scripture. These guys, are, are they know God's word and they are praying it back to him. That's what their prayers were mostly, pouring it back to him. That's why we say the more full you know scripture, the more full would be your, your, your prayer life. To have a solid prayer life or desire for it without an understanding of scripture is dangerous. And this is why it's dangerous. Because you may be expecting God to do stuff he's not going to do. He's never claimed to do it. He doesn't want to do it. You may be, be claiming promises that you ought not to be claiming. And so you're expecting God to do these things. And you know what? He doesn't come through for you the way you expect him to come through. And what's going to happen? Well, one of two things. Either A, you, you walk away in disillusionment. This prayer stuff doesn't work. God doesn't answer. Or you become spiritually schizophrenic. You know, you begin to see answers that really aren't there. But you're just trying to be consistent with your theology. Uh, the word of God and prayer are never, ever to be separated. They are to be there. Now, there are times, of course, when we just study. There are times when we pray. But at the end of the day, the two are, are to feed each other. They're different sides of the um, relationship. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to be going over. Uh, I'm going to look at several different passages even before we get there. But if you can turn to that right now, that would be fantastic. First thing we want to, we want to mention, we look at two facets of prayer, and we want to try to get these down because if we can understand these, I believe that will strengthen our prayer life uh, in immeasurable ways this year. First one is this. Prayer is, above everything else, prayer is heavenly relationship. Now, often when we think of prayer, we think prayer is asking God for stuff, right? That's what we do. That's what it is. We ask God for stuff. Listen to this quote by, by Larry Crabb. He says, when my grandkids sit on Santa's lap at the mall, they have yet to ask Santa how he's doing. If maybe he's getting a little tired of all these kids, they hop on his lap, recite their list of desired gifts, and hop off. We Christians call it prayer. You know, there certainly 
intercession, asking for stuff, is, is a spoke on the prayer wheel. But it is not the hub. We've made it the hub sometimes, but it is not above everything else. The hub is heavenly relationship. Isaiah 56. Isaiah says, these, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus goes through the temple, and he sees the uh, sham that it's become. The marketers are all there. They've, you know, they've got the t-shirt vendor people. or the, the he, he just sees it's become a tourist trap. And so Jesus, in a rare display, uh, exercises a little rage. And flips the tables. John says that he made a whip, especially for this occasion, and he's using it. And while this is while he's making a big mess in the temple, right when he stops, he begins to teach them. And he says this, he quotes Isaiah 56, and he says, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, very important question for us. Why is it that he calls the temple a house of prayer. Now, you know the difference between the temple and synagogues, right? Uh, synagogues were like a Jewish church. You went to wherever there was a gathering of Jews, so you had synagogues throughout uh, Palestine, North Africa, up into Asia Minor. Wherever there were, were major groups of Jews, they had a Jewish church. And they got together, and they read the Torah, and they prayed, and they, they taught, and they encouraged each other. But a synagogue is never referred to in Scripture as, as a house of prayer. New Testament church is never referred to as a house of prayer. The only thing that's a house of prayer or that's called a house of prayer in this very theological term is the temple. Now, I'm not saying we should pray in the church, all those wonderful things. Uh, I'm there. I think we can make a great case for that. But in what way is the temple a house of prayer? Well, here's the deal. You go look at 1 Kings 8, the dedication of the temple. The whole purpose of the temple was to take that thing that separated man from God, our sin, out of the picture. As you gave your sacrifices, the blood temporarily atoned for the sacrifices, allowing man and God to actually commune. You know, we're not alone in praying. Every religion prays. Every, every pagan, animistic religion prays. Are they really connecting with deity? Here's the difference. We, scripturally, we really do connect with God. It's not just our saying things. But the, the idea is that, that our, our sin is atoned for and allows us and God to commune, to really commune. That is prayer. More than anything else, more than asking for stuff. And we're going to deal with the intercession in a moment. But someone will ask, how come we pray if God knows everything? Well, primarily because prayer isn't purely about asking for stuff. It's about relationship. Now, Jesus drives this home a little bit in Matthew 6. What you've got is uh, at this time in history, is these folk are praying uh, very formalized prayers, Judaistic prayers. They, they had pr- uh, basically a prayer for every occasion, many, many prayers. And you were supposed to pray the formalized prayer at the right time. If a storm is coming, they have a prayer for that. If you're hungry, they have a prayer for that. At the end of the day, at, at the beginning of the morning, there, there, there are specific prayers you pray, very formalized thing. But they're watching Jesus. And Jesus sneaks off on his own to pray. And it's like he's enjoying this. And so his disciples pull him aside and they say, Jesus, we know all about prayer, but not like you know prayer. We teach us to pray. 
And so Jesus says, oh, okay. So in Matthew 6, verse 9, he says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father. And you can stop right there because with those two words, he changes everything. An Orthodox Jew would seldom, if ever, refer to Yahweh God, creator of the universe, omnipotent, omniscient God, as Father. I mean, it's just God is too transcendent. He's too other. He's too powerful and holy. You don't use a touchy-feely phrase for God. It would be abhorrent, especially, though, when you think that Jesus probably spoke Aramaic at this time. If he spoke Aramaic, then you know what the word for Father is? Abba, Papa. Jesus, when you want to come to pray, this is what you need. You need to get out of your mind that you're dealing with a policeman, or you're dealing with a judge, or you're dealing with a Santa Claus. Who you're dealing with is your heavenly Father. Now, listen, there are, I mean, this is the, the, the word for spiritual daddy. I love being a dad. I got four kids. Only people in the world who can call me dad are those four. That's the most unique relationship I've got with those guys. No one else can claim it. No one, they can try, but, but they, they, it's not there. But those four guys. When they call me daddy, incredible relationship. You know there's a love that you feel. And I'm guessing God's a better father than I am. How much greater love does he feel towards me? Jesus says, when you pray, this is how it all starts. Heavenly relationship. That's what it's about. That's where it is. Now, can you imagine if in my relationship with my wife, I say, Teresa, I want to have a great relationship with you. Therefore, let's get together and talk. Okay, listen, I've got a tire on the van that needs fixed. Can you fix that today? Also, there's some roof shingles. Can you get up there and take care of those? And don't forget to pick up the kids from the doctor and cut the lawn. And, and you know, we've got to recycle in two weeks. Can you make sure we got cookies? Thank you so much. Love you a whole lot. I enjoyed this time I had with you. And I'm gone. Next morning, I sit down with you. Say, Teresa, you know, I really appreciate these times. I'm glad to see you. Listen, that van tire still needs to be fixed. Now, I'm glad you got care of those shingles. Thank you. Wrong color, but I guess it's going to work. Now, don't forget, Sammy's got an orthodontist appointment today. And, and call that heater guy because the furnace is acting up. I love you a whole lot. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Next morning. Teresa, about that van tire. Now, would anyone call this relationship? This not relationship. But yet, this is often how we treat prayer. Now... Prayer is first and foremost in our mind. It's about heavenly relationship. Second thing about prayer. Prayer is about worldly rebellion. Now, let me unpack that one for you a little bit. Um, Christians, it seems, on this, on this idea of intercession, you know, that's a big part of prayer, asking God for, that's for stuff that is part of prayer, that's a key part of prayer, seem to be divided into two camps. I'm going to go extremes, okay? And please listen to my terms, and please try to understand how I'm defining them. Uh, these extremes are both faulty. The first extreme, the first wrong view, is prayer changes things. And the thought is that uh, prayer moves the hand of, of God. Prayer unleashes God's power on this world. And, and the thought is that, that God, maybe he wants to do stuff, but he can't do anything. But my prayer, see, I'm the puppet master. My prayer is like the, the strings, and I can pull God's get arms. I can get God to do stuff. I'm the, really the one that's sovereign. I'm the one that's in control because God's not going to act unless I pray it to do, happen. That's the way it's going to be. Now, this has several different cousins. First cousin is, 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 do we pray long enough, or get enough people praying, excuse me? Do we have more people praying? Because the more people we got praying, the better chance God has of hearing us. It's kind of like the thought of my uh, congressman. 
We're going to get a petition and we're going to get tons of names on it. And we're going to all call at the same time and light up the, the switchboards in D.C. And we're going to send emails. When this guy's just inundated with, with emails and his switchboard's lit up and he sees the petition, he's going to say, so many people, I guess I should do something here. And we think this is the way it is with, with God. Or we, we go, uh, uh, how intense is our prayers? Or we think, you know what, uh, if I really pray, I mean really pray, and I'm on my knees, and, and I'm, I'm crying out, and the tears are running down my face, and I'm feeling it inside, and I'm fasting for a while, and I'm sleeping on nails. See, if we really prove to God, and God looks at us and says, you, I'm fasting for four days, you must really be serious. Okay, I'll do something. Or we think, you know, how long we pray. See, see this little cheap 10-minute prayer. We need an all-night prayer meeting. See, because when you got an all-night prayer meeting going on, see, then God says, wow, wow, okay, I'm going to answer. Now, listen, please hear me. I fast. I do believe in fasting. I fast. I believe in more than little short, quickie prayers. Um, I, I'm all into prayer chains. But when you and I think that those things are tools in our tool chest that we can pull out to manipulate God, to move God to do what we need him to do. When it's real serious, we pull one of these out because we can make him do something. That is faulty, faulty, faulty theology. So there's, that, there's, that, there's that extreme that says that I'm in control. There's another extreme, though, in prayer. It's equally dangerous. It is, and maybe more so, is that prayer changes nothing. And again, the thought is, you know what? If God is sovereign and God knows everything and God is big and what can I share with him that he doesn't know? Why pray? And so we, we turn prayer into this nice, simple, useless kind of spiritual uh, ritual. And, and we're struggling a little bit. If, you really, if you're a thinker, you're going to struggle because why would Jesus ask me to do something? Because we find lots of commands to pray to do something that's useless and then command me to be a good steward of my time ephesians 5 why would he he do that unless prayer is not useless and a waste of, of your time and now uh, this 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 gets this is where it starts to get complex here matthew 6 so stay with me this then is how you should pray our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven now I am reformed in my theology. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. But I say it to say this. God's will is not always done on earth, at least the way it's done in heaven. Right? God's will is not always done on earth, at least the way it's done in, in heaven. Uh, what we want to make sure, in a, a good way to, to, to think about this, I think, is to um, divide prayer into two categories, okay? One is, is God's sovereign decree. Now, as we think about God's sovereign decree, that's, that's this. God is sovereign. That means he's in charge of accidents, of viruses, of tsunamis, of disease, of birth defects. God is in charge. He's in control. He's not up there going, oh, no, I don't know what's going on. God is, is sovereign. Scripture's all over the place with that one. But though that's true, you, you can't get to a place where you blame evil on God. In Scripture, there is also a category, we'll call it such, of God's permissive will. 
That's, that's uh, God allowing things to happen. An example, all human analogy breaks down, but, but if, someone, if I had to discipline one of my kids for something and someone asked me, is it your will to discipline your child? Well, no. I mean, yeah, it's my will that they would have obeyed me. But since they haven't, given the current situations, yes, it is my will to bring this about, to in- incorporate, incorporate this. Um, we have to be careful because I have, you've seen this abuse where something bad will happen and some will say, well, it's God's will. Don't worry about it. It's God's will. Would you think that it was God's will for J.C. Duggard to be kidnapped on her way to the bus stop when she's 11 and then be abused for 18 years? Is that God's will? Would you say it's God's will for Elizabeth Smart to be kidnapped from her bedroom when she was 14 uh, for about nine months abused? Would you say that's God's will? You say, well, that's God's will. I'm just glad it wasn't God's will for my kid, but that's, yeah, that's God's will. Um, would you say it's God's will that everybody, that, well, not everybody, but that handful of people, a good number of people, if I read Scripture right, end up in hell one day? Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting, not willing anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When we, but we know that's not going to happen. Everybody doesn't repent. When we talk about worldly rebellion, what we're doing is we're, what prayer is, this prayer is saying, the way we pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in, in, in heaven, what's going on down here, Lord, is not acceptable. It's not inevitable. I'm not going to stand by and let heaven. Please, please, would you deal with this? Would you change this? Would your righteousness, your values come here into this God-forsaken situation? Please, would you, would you bring blessing instead? Would you do it? Um, David Wells, a very, very reformed theologian, says this. He says, to come to an acceptance of life as it is, to accept it on its own terms, which means acknowledging the inevitability of the way it works, is to surrender a Christian view of God. This is, this is difficult. If God is sovereign, how is, this, how is it all working together? I don't know, but we see it all over Scripture, and you see it in your life. Scripture, inspiration of Scripture. Is it God's word or man's word? Who, who inspires scripture? Well, you would say, well, it's God's word. God does it. God, and you, if you said that, you'd be, you'd be right. Paul will work with you on this one. Second Timothy says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. But also, is it uh, inspiration from man? Same book. Let's look what we say. Paul. And we could go a lot of verses on this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says, right in his book, he says, I just want you to know who wrote this book, who it's from. It's from Paul. These come together. We can see both of these working in Second Peter. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke. They spoke. It was from them. From God. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We see this working in our salvation. I was to say, okay, your salvation, did, did God choose you or did you choose God? I'd say, well, okay, I guess God chose me, if you're a good Reformed theologian. So you'd say, okay, God chose me. And you'd be right with that one. Ephesians, Paul says, for he, he, God, chose us 
in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He chose us. But did you choose him? Well, absolutely you did. And your salvation man works as well, doesn't he? Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You don't know of anybody who's a believer, who's following Christ, who's saying, I really don't want to be here, but God kind of elected me and brought me in, so I guess I'm here. And you don't find anybody who's outside the wall saying, I really wish I could be following Christ, but I just guess I wasn't foreordained. It just didn't happen to me. This, here's, check out this verse, incredible verse. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Who appointed them? Is your mind, your brain beginning to hurt on this? It should be. Amazing stuff. In your sanctification, who does it? You or God? Well, God does it, doesn't he? Yeah, sure he does. Philippians 1, 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, that's God, will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But when we talk about our sanctification, do you have a place in that? Absolutely you do have a place in that. Man does it as well. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he puts them together in this next verse. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. If this is confusing to you, it was confusing to Paul as well. Uh, We see both aspects, the the divine side and the human side. And again, part of our problem is is we don't like that. It's mystery. We like it cut and dry. And so we tend to emphasize one or the other. And it's where we get ourselves in a little bit of trouble. Now then. How if we're going to be people of prayer 2012, if this is going to be a commitment to help us grow, how can we do it? I mean, I'm thinking most Christians are saying, I want to be a person of prayer. It's not that we don't have the want to often. We just don't have the plan. So three things. Let me give you some practical uh, applications. I may encourage you to read the Papa prayer by Larry Crabb. We had a bunch, I don't know if there's any out on the table anymore. We had a bunch we, we had ordered. It uh, cost us $10.19 plus postage, but we had them on sale for 10 bucks. This book is one of the most refreshing books on prayer that I have read. It's, it's uh, uh, people who are, who are claiming this book, people like Erwin Lutzer, Joe Stoll, J.I. Packer. Uh, this book came out in 2006. Jerry Falwell, James, uh, not James Montgomery Boyce, Dr. James Kennedy, uh, on and on and on. Excellent, excellent book. It's an easy read, but it's an excellent read. If there's no more out, it's you and Amazon, but make it happen. The Papa Prayer. It's a good, good book. Second thing, what I would encourage you to do is practice the worldly rebellion by signing up to be a part of one of the e-prayer teams. Where when, when, when Keith sends you those prayer requests for the youth, you know what? You are saying, that's right. Hell has got his talents in, in our students, in our kids, in this world that they live in, and that's unacceptable. And so, God, would you please pour your Holy Spirit and pray like you mean it for the sake of our our, our students. Practice worldly rebellion. Sign up for an e-prayer team. Third thing, in your bulletin, you received a little resolution card. Resolved as part of my plan to grow spiritually in 2012, I resolved to spend at least 20 minutes a day in prayer. 
Now, we're not handing these in. We're not going to stand up. This, this is nothing that you tell anybody else about. This is a promise between you and God alone. Now, I remember when the first time I was challenged to do this, excuse me, years and years and years ago. So I can, I can give you some, some guarantees what's going to happen. If, if you resolve to do this, you say, 20 minutes. I don't know if I can. You resolve to do this. This is what's going to happen. Uh, for several weeks, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna pray, and you're going to confess every sin known to man, and you're going to ask God for everything, and you're going to think of every missionary, and you're going to ask blessing on them. And when you get done, you're going to look at your watch, and you're still going to have 16 minutes to go. And you're going to go, oh, for crying out loud, what do I do now? And so you're going to say it all again. And that, now what do you do? Then you come to your knee, on your knees, you say, God, I want to be with you, but I'm just not sure what else to say. So is it okay if I'm just here in your presence? You know, you know the, the Puritans used to say, pray until you really begin to pray. Maybe at that point, you really begin to pray. Maybe we never get to the really begin part because we just hurry and rifle through our, our lists. If, if you do this, what's going to happen? I can tell you, I know what's going to happen. You, you will at different times come on your knees and say, I, I do not feel spiritual today right now, God. I'm not even sure you exist right now, God, but I signed the dopey paper. And so, okay, here, out of obedience, pure obedience, I'm coming to you, blah, blah, blah. What's going to happen? I can tell you this. You will, you will get, you crawl into your bed, wore out. You just wore out. It's been a long day. It's 11 o'clock and then it will hit you. You didn't pray. Oh, no, no, no. So you fall back on your knees and, 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 you, and you, you seek to pray. Now, I can also make you this guarantee, though. If this isn't one of these things where, oh, yeah, once in a while, forget that one. But if it's really every day, 20 minutes, I can promise you this. The end of 2012, you'll have Bob wire around that 20 minutes because that 20 minutes will be the, the most precious 20 minutes of your day. You'll, you'll be asking yourself at the end of 2012, how did I get by by 20 lousy minutes? You're going to notice it's going to grow. It's going to be an incredibly powerful time. And at the end of 2012, you are going to, if you you spend time with Jesus, sincerely, you are going to look more like him. You just will. You will grow this, this year. So at the end of 2012, will a commitment to prayer have been a part of your plan to grow? If you're going to grow, it's got to be there in one way or the other.